Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior. If you're new here, welcome. And thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, that is your time. Today's entrepreneur or entrepreneur, as the case might have it today, is a true legend, in my opinion, in the solar and wind industry. Emily Cohen of Primergy has been in the game for more than 20 years. You're going to hear more about her in just a moment, but I want to give you an opportunity today to learn from someone who has started from the bottom and worked her way up to being chief development officer at one of the largest solar developers in the world, Primergy, developing one of the largest solar projects in the world talk about that and so so much more in today's episode i hope you're subscribed to the show as that will ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this of course you can always check out nearly 600 additional clean energy founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com i hope that you are subscribed and that you'll give us a like and a review if you would while you are at it but for now let's get ready to tune up your skills solar warrior as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. I don't often get a chance to have a conversation with an executive that has the level of experience and breadth of experience in project development across sort of pan-renewables as I do today. My guest, Emily Cohen, is going to regale us with her 20-plus years of renewable project development that includes more than 15 gigawatts of operational solar and wind projects. We'll talk about some of their battery storage projects and the ways that the work that Primergy is doing is helping us transition to a more clean, decarbonized electric grid. If the name Primergy sounds familiar, then thank you for listening to previous episodes with, with the Quinbrook founder, David Skaysbrook. If you didn't listen, I encourage you to go check that out. But we're going to have an amazing conversation with an industry executive that I think needs more opportunity on the mic. Emily, before Primergy, oversaw renewable activities at Anji North America and led that team to the number one position for utility scale PPAs. She's got a ton of experience in rolling up her sleeves and getting done. So I am glad to welcome you to your first podcast interview, Emily Cohen. Thanks for joining us on Suncast. Thanks for having me, Nico. I'm excited excited to talk this morning. Yeah. Well, we are going to, I'm afraid that I won't get into as much of the good stuff because there's so much that you've experienced. We could do a three hour interview and probably not exhaust the opportunity to extract the real wisdom that you've gleaned in, I mean, doing the hard work. There are few, and I say that like maybe less than a hundred and probably it's smaller than that executives who've had the experience you've had. I mean, forget gender, like executives in the industry. So I genuinely mean it when I say that it is an honor to have a chance to kind of dig in. And while you come at this with like a sense of, oh, this is my first podcast interview, 
I come at it after 600 interviews with a sense of like, holy crap, am I going to do this justice? <laughs> so I uh, look forward to it. Let's dig in. How would you describe the problem at a macro level that Primer G aims to solve? When I think about the problem that Primer G needs to solve, I think about the problem that the world needs to solve as it relates to deploying clean energy and decarbonizing the electric grids. And Primergy is just one of many important companies doing this really important work as we try to get to a fully decarbonized energy system in a way that you know prevents some of the, the worst potential impacts of climate change. We are very focused on deploying large-scale solar and storage solutions for a couple of different reasons. First, we think that doing Doing big projects, taking big bites out of the problem mm -hmm. is the way to actually move the ball forward quickly. Our Gemini project is just one example. I think it is the largest project in the U.S. I hope it's not the largest project for long, right? And I hope others start doing these big projects as well, because that's how we're going to get there yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. So big projects. And then I think projects that have the ability to mimic more traditional power plants through dispatchability, through you know, mid to long duration battery storage like Gemini and others, because again, we don't just need kilowatt hours to supply electric demand. We need to make sure those kilowatt hours are available when consumers need them. The renewable technology is here today to mm -hmm. actually enable us to get to a decarbonized transmission grid. Mm -hmm. We just need a lot more folks out there deploying it. Mm. Well, you've had a lot of experience deploying. I mentioned your time at, at Anji. We'll get into a little bit more of your background here in a few moments, but would you take a moment for those who are unfamiliar and introduce us to Primergy? How is it solving the problem that you've just enunciated, the gap, the wide berth in clean electrons that we need to put on the grid to decarbonize it as we take off the grid, uh, you know, scores of terawatt hours of, of fossil fuel generation? I think there's a few ways we're looking at how to uniquely solve this problem. One is that we're really focused on markets that are not already super saturated by renewables. So going to places where we're going to see, you know, independent system operators, liquid trading markets appear hopefully within the next several years and making sure the projects in those markets are ready to be deployed when the demand becomes available or the demand starts happening in those given markets. I think we're also really focused on how we approach project development. We're infrastructure developers, and there's a lot of different ways you can go about doing infrastructure development. And some of those ways are a little slash and burn mm -hmm. and can be, you know, just quite frankly, exploitative, not respecting local communities, not thinking through environmental justice concerns, not thinking through the impacts on biota that these projects have when we're doing deployments. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, when I think about what we're trying to do as Primergy, and then what we're trying to do as you know the U.S. renewable development industry, if we do the amount of megawatts that we actually have to do to decarbonize the grid without being thoughtful about communities and conservation, there's going to be some really negative side effects to all of that. And I think we're really trying to avoid that. It's front and center for Primergy thinking about those impacts when we go to greenfield or acquire projects and build projects. I can t totally appreciate the idea around, I'm going to call it like the Primergy way, but developing an infrastructure development protocol process that allows you to scale. You know, we were introduced by our mutual friend, Adam Larner, who was, I think, employee one for Primergy here in the United States, uh, maybe one or two back when, uh, before Gemini, as the project was getting sort of off the ground in the United States. 
and he has a huge track record of of seeing projects deployed through multiple sort of iterations in his career. Adam, I know you're listening. One of these days, we're going to actually get you on Suncast, man. But can you talk a bit about, uh, or maybe unpack a little, some of the, what you might call core principles around development that, that embody the the primary way or the way that you all have th- or think about it? Uh, you mentioned one, which is not exploitive, respecting local communities. What others might might exist there? I will just say Adam must be telepathic because he's calling me right now, right as he said his name. So good. <laughs> I'm going to text him a picture of us. I know. Be like, we're busy right now, Adam. We're doing a podcast. I will. I'll do it. Um, yeah. So um, there's a lot of elements to thinking about how to to do these projects in a way that is, I don't know, kind of like holistically sustainable. I, you know, I hesitate to use a term that generic, but I think it does describe what we're trying to get at here. Renewables has, we've always thought ourselves as a pretty virtuous industry um, because of what we're trying to do. And I think as a result of that, we've not really thought about what some of the impacts might be to the work we're doing. It's just like, oh, we're developing renewables. Of course, it's, you know, it's climate change. We need to get this done. It's, you know, kind of, it, it supersedes other concerns, which, you know, I'm, I, I think can think that way myself sometimes, but I think there's a, just a level of honesty we need to have about the impacts we have. Right. So don't just say, oh, well, you know, everything's going to be fine. We're not going to there's not going to be any impacts to XYZ species from building this wind farm or building this solar project. I think it's about an honest assessment of, you know, changes to, you know, changes to the grading system, changes to local communities, changes to view sheds, the thing yeah, that's the things landscape. that are actually <laughs> happening out there. Right. Yeah. And like, let's not, let's not hide the ball on that. Let's be really clear about that up front. I think there's just a level of like intellectual honesty there. Um, that will keep us all honest and it will also make us a little bit better at solving some of the, or I guess I would say mitigating some of those impacts if we're, if we're really clear about what they are. Community partnerships is another big part of this. I will say there, there has been projects that we have walked away from because, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, we can kind of get into talking about some of the opposition that's really developed out there to solar in particular and wind as well. But considering you know, is this actually like not a great place to develop this project because Mm -hmm. it is, you know, within the view shed of a national monument Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it might be. And that kind of gets to the local partnerships piece. So really thinking about, you know, how do we make sure some of the benefits of these projects actually accrue locally to where the most impact is being felt? In the West, in particular, where a lot of projects are public land-sided projects, you're not getting this sort of direct landowner benefit like you might be in the Midwest or Texas or something like that, where you have dollars or lease payments mm-hmm. flowing back to the local community. So in places, I think in particular, where you're dealing with public lands, thinking about how you can make sure benefits are accruing locally to the folks who are the most impacted by the projects. Emily, the, the sheer scale of Gemini is impressive. And as you noted, it is close to the city center, a big population center that has a notably pretty heavy electrical load at night, <laughs> if anybody's ever been to Vegas. Um, when David was on, he talked a bit uh, at a high level about sort of the purpose, like what what Gemini was built for and uh, NV Energy, like the way that that whole contract was built. Like, can you explain for the layperson the purpose of this power plant and how that might be in, in many ways, not just the future, but the evolution of solar and storage power plants in the United States today? Sure. So I think at the ultimate goal is to solve 
the customer's problem, right? I say this as like a, a originator at heart as it comes to a lot of this kind of stuff, right? Like what's, yeah. what was what what was the issue and the energy was trying to address yes. by doing this kind of procurement? Um, and it is, as you note, Vegas is not much of a daytime city. I mean, I guess it is if you, but <laughs> certainly uh, not the same level of electrical load in the day. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you've got this utility that has decarbonization goals and they're trying to make sure they also have electrical needs, you know, mm-hmm. it's interesting to think about the fact that it's not just about decarbonization. It's also about building new power plants, whatever they are, because people need more electricity than they used to. Yeah. Um, and so for NV, it was important for them to have a structure and a type of project that would enable them to meet some of that, you know, kind of peakiest evening demand Mm-hmm. they saw in Las Vegas, specifically in the Las Vegas metropolitan area. And Gemini, because of its, you know, over 50% bass ratio to solar PV is really able to move a lot of that energy to a period of the day that the demand is actually there from Envy. And I think it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways to contract for solar plus storage. I think that, that this project in particular, Gemini really meets the needs of this customer well, especially the needs they're going to have as the project comes online starting in 24. So you mentioned a term that I want to make sure folks understand when you said BEZ having over 40% or over 50% BEZ, that's battery energy storage system. Why is that uncommon? Like what's the typical ratio for battery energy storage right now on a typical solar plant? What's the attachment size? I would say it varies heavily, but I would also I would also posit that we have not seen enough deployment of solar plus storage at scale to really make any concrete assertions about what the size is that's out there that's yeah. the most normal, right? So this is like, even though we've been talking about it for years, it is still relatively novel um, in terms of how many projects are deployed this way and the reasons they're deployed. It also really depends on the market that you're in and the product that you're trying to create with your with your storage system. In Nevada, um, it's not a like it's not a liquid liquid traded market. There's not a capacity market or an RA market or resource adequacy market that Nevada is participating in with the battery. It's just it's truly about meeting their capacity needs at night. In other in other parts of the country, you're going to create different kinds of products from a facility that looks basically exactly the same because of where you're located. And that will also help dictate how you size some of those things. And then with with the Inflation Reduction Act, everything is now on the table in terms of how we're looking at batteries and where they should go vis-a-vis the projects and the generation sources. Super interesting point. I hope that we don't forget to come back around to it because with the IRA, batteries get incentives as a standalone project and didn't have that benefit when Jim and I began. By the way, for those who are unclear on RA, we did an episode with uh, my friend Will from Strata and Josh Rogel on the big battery plant plant they did in California that explains exactly what resource adequacy is. If you want to listen to that, I'll try to uh, link to that in the show notes. I wonder, is the model that you are building for Primergy now in the Southwest at least, do, do you consider it or characterize it as uh, load shifting? Yeah, I think load shifting is moving. I like, and I think we should touch on this at some point, but taking a step back and thinking about what the future state of the electricity grid looks like, what's going to happen over the next five or six years in terms of the grid and generation and demand and electric vehicles. And, you know, just, it's going to be a a massive shift and how does large scale storage fit best into that? You know, I think about storage in many ways as an alternative to transmission. So, you know, if you're going to be citing, citing storage, which is not a huge geographic footprint, 
next to a solar project has traditionally been done. So for a few different reasons, but one of which is that by building the whole thing together, you can get in the, you could get the investment tax credit on the, the battery facility as well as the solar facility. So that was driving a lot of that particular reason behind siting. I still think that's going to continue to happen. Um, but now that standalone batteries can get their own investment tax credit, I think the, the business case for where you're going to site them is going to start to evolve. But Citing them, you know, if you've got five different solar projects located around a single substation, which let's just face it, it happens. I think my old boss one time referred to developers as kindergartners playing soccer, like all chasing Everybody the ball runs at the same the time, ball. right? Everyone <laughs> runs to the ball. Every, That's Illinois that, right Matt. now, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Everyone, everyone runs to the ball. So, okay, great. You've got five, you know, 500 megawatt projects, you know, this ideal future world <laughs> clustered around one substation and you know you've got constraint you're going to start to have constraints on that transmission system but if you start to deploy batteries in and around those locations you can shift the time that that those facilities are delivered to the grid which enables you to do and i think this is really key cuz transmission is it's such a hot topic but thinking about there's there's an element here of doing more with less that batteries enable on the transmission side in particular, which I think is something we need to continue to focus on. It takes a long time to build new transmission lines, regardless of any federal permitting improvements or anything. And I'm super supportive of all of that work happening, but we can deploy best soon and yeah. use that to really think about dispatch and think about utilizing our existing transmission network to make sure energy gets to where it needs to go. Yeah. I mean, if I'm reading the tea leaves here. There's two things. So first of all, Bill, Bill Gates recently came out with a video for Breakthrough Ventures that says essentially like we can't do any of this without transmission. So stop everything and let's build transmission effectively. Like he is not, he's an opponent of all of the above, but I've had a number of conversations among them uh, recently with, with some folks at another battery startup that were talking about virtual transmission, like the ability, right? I'm, and yeah. so this is what I mean by reading the tea leaves here. What I hear you saying is strategically allocating not solar but standalone battery storage along the transmission route and allowing that to absorb power so instead of curtailing you allow the power to be fractionally distributed through the grid in this virtual power plant or this virtual transmission is am i am i talking are we talking about kind of the same thing yeah i think we're talking about kind of the same thing i think you know i think it can be I, again i think i love that you that i'm certainly not going to debate bill gates on this topic right I, mean, I, think that, <laughs> I, I think others will though i, I mean i would go for it i, I, I mean, don't mind i will say he did mention rto expansion in that article which for me is like that's you can't one thing without the other doesn't make sense but i digress i think i think yes distributed storage as a way to distribute load and generation more effectively around the transmission system is a big part of what's going to need to happen but there's also a desire to at the source and not the sink or anywhere in between, but actually at the source to think about, okay, I've got the solar facility. We're, we're pumping out all kinds of electrons in the middle of the day. Are they ever going to be needed then? Or should they always be delivered at a different time? And as long duration storage starts to pick up, I do think there is still an argument for co-location for that particular reason. Again, you know, Kindergarten, kindergartners playing soccer, you're going to end up with like a constraint right there unless you do think about deploying storage. But it all requires a level of coordination and 
I don't know, market mechanisms around transmission to make all of this happen in a timely way. What's the duration spec for Gemini? Because we talked long and short duration. I was impressed and I, I don't remember the numbers. So I'm just going to ask you again. Like I was impressed when I heard the original like numbers around what it's designed to deliver from the battery system. But can it maybe take that as a moment to at a high level, not at a scientific level, explain short versus long duration and how your power plant is designed to provide that power to Las Vegas through the, through the battery system as a backup source? Yeah. So Gemini is a four hour duration system. So it can store, you know, it's a 380 megawatts, four hour system. So, you know, there's all kinds of optimizations around operations and things like yeah. that, but that is sort of, I would say that's really the the standard right now, the standard long duration. I think the technologies are developing and, you know, you can, you can do longer duration batteries. It's just a matter of cost, right? I think it's important to know, like, well, where, how does Envy Energy see this playing a role in their ability to not just decarbonize, but to, but to provide backup power, right? Like, is this meaningful or is it trivial? Because a lot of the fossil fuel industry would suggest that the work we're doing is meaningless and trivial. It's a drop in the bucket to what's needed. Uh, and, and what we're saying is, oh, you just wait and see. <laughs> yeah, right. When you're talking about a power plant that is size of Gemini, including the battery system, it is meaningful, right? It's not decarbonization window dressing for anybody. And Envy has done an admirable job retiring coal facilities in and around Southern Nevada over the last several years, anticipating a lot of this solar build out. So for them, they are, you know, Envy is is genuinely looking to solve a problem, right, with the demand for energy in Las Vegas at night, which Gemini is really helping with in a meaningful way. I think it's also no secret around the West for those of us who are in the West. I mean, maybe not right now because it's been raining like nonstop, but that we do have some massive shortages on the hydro side as well, right? And it's becoming less and less reliable as a source. And I think a lot of utilities are beginning to see just a changing, changing supply stack overall and the need to diversify what they're buying. Emily, I want to pull back here to the 30,000 feet again, because I think it's important as, as we get to know your viewpoints and philosophy on development to really get a sense of kind of how you got to the place you're at. I mentioned in the outset that you have what I consider to be an illustrious career. And I always love to hear more about that story. Let's start with where you grew up. You're a California girl. I am. I am born and bred Santa Barbara. Where I am very fortunate, where I where I have been fortunate to find a career in the space that I love. So, mm. grandfather was a railroad engineer. Your family uh, are are used to traveling long distances, you might say. Um, tell me a bit about how uh, the the nature of growing up in Santa Barbara and with the family that you have influenced the um, sort of the early spark for you around being an an early advocate for energy and climate. Sure. Um, so I think Santa Barbara, and you know, we have a healthy petroleum production industry here in many ways, right? Which I think people don't think about. They think about Santa Barbara as this little kind of gem of a town in Southern California. But you know, there's 15 oil derricks or something like that sitting in the channel. And in 1969, here there was a massive oil spill, and in many ways, that oil spill and the public outrage that happened after that oil spill marked 
the beginning of the environmental movement. I mean, this is 1969. And so Santa Barbara has always been a place, I think, that there's been a high level of focus on conservation, um, environmental issues, and the like. So it's, 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 it's everywhere here, right? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a part of the fabric of the community. Um, and my parents, you know, they were certainly part of that. They owned a natural fabric store, no petroleum products. That's where I spent my entire childhood in that, in that environment. So hearing from an early age about the problems that are tangential to the petroleum industry and directly created by the petroleum industry. So it was always something that was very much part of my life, thinking about how to do things in a more environmentally conscious way. Is it true that you did projects on geothermal energy in junior high? Yeah, it, it is. Nico, how, how on earth did you know that? Yes, I did. I've always been <laughs> quite interested in energy. Um, but yes. Yeah. I love that you, I, uh, you had family who said, you know what, we want, a, we want to emphasize no petrochemicals and a daughter who said, you know what, and, and if we're going to pull things out of the earth, let's use the temperature change of the earth rather than the dinosaur bones. You know, bring that up because there are lots of us, myself included, who are in this industry because later in life, we had this sort of awakening to the reality that the two critical needs in an industrialized society are, are energy and water. And I, I don't know how I'm going to help with water, but I kind of fell into solar energy. You, on the other hand, had both a choosing and a, a falling forward, as it were. Tell me about the path for you through college into what maybe even few listening would recognize as one of the preeminent early renewable companies in the industry, Clipper Renewables. I had always an interest, I would say, in doing something, you know, as I feel like thinking about my younger self, try to channel this still, think, doing something for the greater good. Um, I thought, you know, one of those avenues was to go into politics. So that was something I was, you know, very sure I was going to be doing at a young age. And I went to DC, I went to DC for school to George Washington University. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I think it was 2000. I was sort of like quickly, quickly delusioned with it and immediately realized it was not really what I wanted to be doing. I took this one class called Energy, Economy, and the Environment during my senior year, which was, I mean, it was just like 2002. It was, I think, still fairly novel at the time. I mean, it was still the era where we were getting like printouts of, you know, the professor would like copy his textbooks, you know, and hand them out to us or copy his books, um, portions of Cadillac Desert and the like, and kind of hand them out to us. And it was, it was a super influential class for me. And I hadn't, really appreciated that there was this intersection of these areas that I was, you know, very interested in and had always been interested in environment and energy. So it made me, you know, realize that that was something I wanted to continue to try to pursue as a career, you know, as most uh, people in their, you know, that phase of their life, 20 year olds or whatever, I was sort of confused about how to do it next. So decided I was going to get my get my degree in the third E there and go get my master's in economics back here, back, back at home in Santa Barbara, UCSB, and move back. And, you know, as it, I feel like, you know, as it's so, there's so much happenstance that comes with so many careers, right? And I feel yeah. so lucky that so many things have just gone right in many ways. Um, but, you know, my, my mom who was, had a, had a client who was vice president of development at Clipper Wind Power. And there yeah. was ten employee. There was ten employees, or something like that. And 
they gave me an internship, which was, you know, (laughs) here we are like 21, 21 years later. Right. And I'm just like, so grateful still, um, that that all happened. But, um, yeah, so I started at Clipper, you know, when I was, it was me and a few executives primarily, right. There wasn't even, there was no middle management or anything like that. And that experience was just invaluable. Yeah. So we're going to be more specific. It was not just you and a few executives. You and three executives who need to be, we need to tell the audience a little bit more about. So, can you explain kind of the leadership at Clipper when you joined? Sure. Um, so, Clipper, uh, again, I feel like it's been it's been long enough that people might not remember everything about it, but it was a it was a wind wind turbine manufacturer with sort of an yeah. adjacent development Homegrown, business, American made. Yeah, totally founded by Jim Dielson, right? Um, yeah. And Jim, who is I mean, in many, I mean, he founded Zond Systems, right? In many ways, which became, and Ron Wynn, which became GE. The, yep. Very much considered like the father of the American wind industry. And so he was, you know, Clipper was his new venture and he was working on, you know, he's a, he's a brilliant guy and working on mm-hmm. his, his next generation of wind turbines, you know, distributed generation, distributed generator wind turbines. So he was running the company, him and his son, and then there was a couple other people who were there at the time. And I would say one of one of the people who was the most influential in my career, even though I only got to work with him for a couple of years, was Dave Olson, who was the head of development at Clipper at that time, who had just come off of his stint as the CEO of Patagonia, and then has obvi- obviously went on to the Kaiso Board of Governors. Um, and Dave was just a massive influence in First, my decision not to go back to graduate school, which I still am super grateful for him for that. I was going to so ask thank you, you for that. Yep. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Dave. Tell that story. Me... You know, we'll tell, we'll yeah, sure. tell that story yeah. first. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was, I, I think I was, you know, my internship after two months of like manually plotting wind turbine locations on maps and mapping out real estate, and you know, doing all kinds of other intern type activities at Clipper. I was getting ready to go back and get my master's in economics. And I had a conversation with Dave about it. And I was like, uh, Dave, should I, should I do this? Should I go get an MBA? And he looked at me and he said, I have a master's in English literature. <laughs> He's like, you do not need to do this. Like you can just take a financial accounting class at City College and you're going to be good to go. So with, I took that advice so seriously because he was, you know, still one of the most successful people that I know. And I, I, you know, never went back to, never went back to grad school actually. And yeah. And took that financial accounting course, which was, you know, it cost me like maybe $80. It was kind of amazing. It was great advice financially too. Best $80 I ever spent. And I didn't go back and they offered me a job at Clipper as like a development coordinator. And I'd be remiss and also remiss and also not mentioning Peter, Peter Stricker, who was the person who really brought me in to Clipper still a dear friend and was just spent so much time kind of really teaching me the ropes of how to do project development. Um, and, you know, now he's doing all kinds of very cool things in the desalinization industry and has, you know, done a lot of other fascinating things with his career, but between, between Jim and Brent and Dave and Peter, it was like, probably, I probably learned more that summer than I did my entire college career to be honest. And I think, you know, internships and getting that kind of exposure are the most valuable things I think you can do for your career. I want to talk a bit about, you've seen the industry change a ton. I'll clip off a few things. 
that I would highlight as accolades for folks who kind of understand the industry from from Clipper, six years, you went to Axiona uh, as a project developer and then to Element Power. And for those who aren't familiar with Element Power, uh, Element Power did uh, the now president of now president of Poen, Jeff Brown, and many, many others uh, were alongside you at Element doing first evers of projects like left and right, sold that whole portfolio to First Solar, went on to Infinity, and then to Anji, essentially as VP of corporate strategy and project development for what in our industry we consider like household brands. It's like the GE of our industry. It's the it's the Kellogg or the or the Procter and Gamble of our industry, right? Like the the folks that are actually doing huge amounts of project development and project syndication, PPAs, et cetera, like changing the tide for the industry that as we know it. But the biggest hurdle that I hear you and many other developers uh, sort of asserting here is, is the, is that we still have now an even stronger, there wasn't an anti, there wasn't a lobby anti-renewables at that time because nobody cared. It was a, it was a, it was a, a flea, a gnat on a dinosaur's back. And now there's a concerted effort, candidly leading landowners uh, astray in their, in like establishing a, fa- a faulty, a failed mindset around what renewables can mean for their community. I think that we could, again, spend uh, quite a bit of time, uh, another episode perhaps, on just that topic. But how, how does your development team or Primergy as a major uh, player in the industry counteract the subversive lobbying that we see now against renewables? In some ways, like I think you are alluding to this, the fact that we have this level of organized and well-funded opposition I mean, good, good on us, right? Like we've really, it, it means that we're relevant, right? Would not, we were, when I was starting out doing this, explaining to people even what I did for a living was a challenge, right? We're, renewables is a mainstream business now. So with that level of maturity as an industry, I think opposition is to be expected. You asked me a question about what Primergy is doing here, right? We're doing as much as we can on an individual project basis. But, you know, if I might, if I might use this platform as a call to action, uh, which I believe it is, which I believe that is part, part of what this is for. Um, the industry needs to be doing just a, a lot, a lot more as a coalition to create broader public messaging about the benefits of renewable energy and dispel some of these just, you know, just patently untrue myths and statements that have really seemed to grab hold in this era where you have a lot of different platforms where misinformation can proliferate wildly. And there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a fight fire with fire here thing. Like, you know, we, again, I go back to the comment I made sort of at the beginning about being virtuous, right? Yes. Like we are doing renewables. We're so, you know, we're, we're saving the planet. Right. But like, how do we, we need to, we can't just rely on the fact that that is the truth to counteract this negative messaging. And we need to get out there and tell the story more broadly and I, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, some of the industry organizations, you know, combined with help from the individual members are going to be focusing more on that in the coming years, because I, I truly think that it's going to become more and more of a problem for project development, you know, in places that we were welcomed with open arms 10 years ago, we're not. And the situation hasn't changed there on the ground and nothing has changed about the technology. It's the information and the misinformation that is changing people's perception. 
Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and You've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Heck, Solve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. You mentioned before I go move on to the next sort of thing I wanted to unpack for about the last 20 years of, of, of change and evolution that you've seen. More specifically, you said that there are, we need to dispel patently untrue statements. And I may have some suppositions of what those are, but to remove doubt and to, for me, call on our creators in the industry and our executives industry who do have answers to these, what are for you some of the core myths or disinformation that we need to counteract for those who maybe don't know and, and that I could even broadcast out to my community and say, hey, guys, like here, here it is. These are the lies. Let's tell the truth. Right. And then let's you know, put some dollars behind telling the truth, too, because that's a that's yes. part of this as well. Um, it can't be in an echo chamber. Um, so I think there's a few that come to mind. I think the, pro- the property value myth continues to persist despite many, many studies to the contrary that having a solar or wind project in your community has long-term negative effects on property values. And just like study after study has shown that that actually doesn't happen. You're adding a revenue source. You're increasing funding to public schools and the like that comes from these projects. I mean, I think solar specifically gets this, you know, there's a lot of, some of, well, some of the things that we've heard lately are that solar changes the climate in a different way than the way that we're trying to change the climate prevents rainfall, you know, has these sort of like microclimate impacts that there's just like no science behind. And then I think there's, you know, there's ongoing discussions about solar destabilizing the and, and wind destabilizing the power grid. You know, I think what happened in Texas is a fantastic example of this. And I think there was actually a decent amount of PR on the pro-renewable side because that rhetoric around renewables was just vitriolic that came after winter storm Yuri. 
um, but that it is the fault of renewables not being available that these things are happening, which is not, it's just not the truth. I think there's, you know, always projects that can be better cited renewables and otherwise there's always improvements we can be making from a resiliency perspective, but um, that's another one. And then, you know, chemicals leaching into the groundwater from these projects is another Another big one we hear quite a bit. Well, that's so, the tail wagging the dog, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> oh my it, goodness, it, I'm sure the list to, goes yeah, on and on. Just, just, you have to just kind of like park the fact that it doesn't, and it's hard, right? And I think, you know, you and I can sit here and say, oh, those don't make any, like, obviously those things are not true. They don't make any sense. So what? That's what we think, right? Like we need to be appealing yeah. to a broader audience when it comes to the downsides, you know, when it comes to dispelling the downsides and then talking about the upsides more, because in the US, we still do not, we are not aligned on climate, right? Unlike other countries where you have both sides of the aisle feeling the same way about the changes we need to make, it doesn't happen here, right? So you're only going to, you're not going to convince a large percentage of the US population that they need to be doing something to save the climate. But you can talk about all of the other benefits that come from infrastructure development that are bipartisan, that everyone can kind of get behind. So all of those things together need to happen in order to do the level of deployment that we're all talking about. You know, what's, what's, behind, the, what's behind the IRA and the, the goals of the IRA to get to this decarbonized energy system is they're incredible goals. These, these things will, these local permitting issues and opposition is, is as important as transmission or anything else in getting it, there, getting it done. Right. And there needs to be the same. I want to see the article from Bill Gates about this stuff, right? I want to see the funding yeah. behind federal, or I would say national PR and public public communications efforts to dispel the myths that persist about the negative impacts of renewable energy. Here's my call to action for Bill Gates. Let's see if that... <laughs> I love it. I'm on, a, I'm, on, I'm on a board with some of the breakthrough people, so I feel like I'm probably going to hear about that, but that's okay. This is great. Uh, Bill, alongside your call for more transmission, please use your platform to dispel the myths like chemicals and groundwater and solar displacing our food chain and solar and wind destabilizing rather than reinforcing a resilient power grid. Bill, you have an obligation to help us here. <laughs> That's me pretending Bill Gates is ever going to pay attention to my podcast, but hey, maybe the breakthrough folks will. <laughs> I want to just also note that SIA and uh, America Clean Power, ACP, have done an incredible job um, as two organizations, both of coming up with the talking points and working, like actually collateralizing the effort to dispel these myths, but also, uh, and in particular, ACP, like raising money towards a PAC, which if we put it side by side with what the what the uh, fossil fuel industry is doing, it is pathetic and paltry, and that's our fault, not the association's fault, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, but- we have to start somewhere. So my call to action, if there, if we have room for another one is guys, we have got to put our money where our mouth is like, not even, like there are so many folks who don't even join the associations. Well, it, those associations are really the only credible source right now trying to create political action committees to move the needle and to, to join, a, like to, to create coalition around the kind of lobbying and the kind of like public media we need to dispel these myths. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mo moving on to the next uh, topic of conversation. Th so that's the evolution of the industry <laughs> in, in 20 minutes. Um, but over the last 20 years, as someone who 
has been able to see sort of another evolution in the industry. I'm curious, as a woman in the industry, how have things changed for you over that time? Um, and how do you reflect on where we're at as an industry from uh, an equity perspective? So I would say in some ways it's changed a lot and in some ways it hasn't changed at all. And I, I feel like I kind of say that with a little bit of a heavy heart, to be honest, because I, you know, we always want, we want things to be constantly improving. Um, you know, I would love to see, I'd love to be able to say like renewables is a super equitable industry. I, I think that we've done, we're doing better. I think the last couple of years has been better. We've been more mindful about it, but I would say, you know, for the first, you know, 15 years of my 21 year career in renewables, like it's been, it's a, it's the power business, right? And that's what I tell people, like when they ask me about the role and being in this field, it's not being, it's not working at an environmental NGO, right? It is the power sector in many ways. And that comes with a pretty, I mean, pretty, it's a pretty white male dominated space. And every study you look at shows that actually, you know, our, the level of women and people of color in the renewable space is lower than the workforce as a whole, right? Um, so it's certainly a problem. I think we've, we've done better over the last few years, just in terms of considering like representation among leadership, um, bringing, bringing women specifically in at, you know, more junior positions to train people up to kind of removing some of the barriers to women getting into management but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely still think, you know, earlier in my career, I was also, you know, I was younger and, you know, is also now I feel like I'm more senior and it's potentially a little bit easier for me in some of these spaces. So I don't want to represent what it's like for a younger woman today because I don't actually know because um, that's not my experience. And I don't want to say, yeah, and I, like I said, I, but I don't want to say it's all better because I think that's, I don't want to dismiss the challenges that still remain out there for many women in the renewable industry, industry, especially in leadership. So, I mean, Primergy, I would say that I'm super proud of these statistics. So I want to say them like a hundred times, but we are, we are 41%, yeah. we are 41% female as a company. What? And That's amazing. And then this one, next one is so good. 45% of our managers are female. So it's not just about 45? having- 45? 45, yes. You're almost there, Emily. I, I know, oh, right? There. So exciting. So, so I'm I'm looking for 51. I want to <laughs> 51. That's totally. Like, 45 is amazing for such a huge organization. Yeah, I mean, it's and so I I think it's not just about having women in your team, right? Like it's about having women in leadership yeah. on your team. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not been without a lot of intention. And I think a huge yeah. part of the reason we've been successful in getting to those numbers is that we've been We've been really thoughtful about it. We've, you know, we're, th mm -hmm. we're thinking about, we're thinking about diverse recruiting all the time, but I mean, let's be, yeah. I mean, I think we, we haven't even touched on the fact that Primergy, we kind of launched and launched effectively after the pandemic started and COVID, you know, yeah. we're like, I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but I think having, you know, myself as our chief development officer, I've hardly ever had the opportunity to work for a woman in my own career, mm. which is, uh, it's something I hope changes, you know, it's just been a couple of times here and there, but never on a consistent basis. Who, who would you want to work for? No, oh, Laura Bean. I would like, I, I, I feel like I yeah, always, <laughs> always, yeah. I mean, I feel like I almost did. I almost got a nice long stint working for Laura and then it never came together. So, um, oh, oh yeah. I would Those love who to don't know, Laura, Laura Bean, Laura Bean is, uh, another, uh, she's on my bucket list, as you know, of people to get on the show. 
but she runs Vestas North America and is a, uh, a true pioneer, uh, in many different ways, but, um, wow. Yeah. I mean, Laura, I think I would like to, I would love to, she's on my list of people I'd like to work for. Um, she's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Is there, is there anyone else? Yeah. I'm just going to say this and I am sure I'm going to offend a hundred people, but I, the fact that I can't think of somebody off the top of my head is the problem, right? Mm. There aren't, there are not that many senior women in this industry. Right. It's a couple, it's a couple handfuls. Right. And I, yes, I could actually think of several other names of people who I'd be happy to work for, but like, sure. it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, the list does not just roll off your tongue. Right. It's a Venn diagram of solving for like what you would want in your career and, and what that person would be able to offer you and like taking something that feels like a step up, not sideways. So it's probably easier in some ways for others to look up to you and Laura and those who sit at that echelon. Right. And, but you've made it like you've, you've made it to the, the, in many ways, like the highest level of um, professional development that our industry currently offers, right? Next step for you would be like going to work for a massive company like Vestas or GE or buying them. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I, I feel like I did my stint as a wind turbine. Oh yeah. In manufacturing. A couple of, a couple of times. <laughs> I'm, I, I, when I said I wanted to work for Laura, I don't want to work at Vestas. Um, because there. I'm super, I'm yeah. super happy. I'm also super happy where I am, but I guess kind yeah. of going back to my original point. So kind of picking back up there, like, I think because mm. we were hiring during the pandemic and because we do have women in leadership, I, I have to think that that helped a little bit with the number of women we were able to bring in. Um, when I hired our head of development, um, Lisa Leipzig, who is just incredible, you know, we had a conversation like, She's like, how is this going to be for me? Like, it's, you know, it's October, 2020. I have two kids at home who are not in school, right? And this, you're asking yeah. me to come work for you at a startup, right? And <laughs> I think the fact that I can, I could have a conversation with Lisa where I was like, listen, like I, I, I totally get it, right? And I am gonna, we're gonna create space for you to be a mother in an, and, and, a, and a high performing working professional here. And to be able to, you know, kind of like put my money where my mouth is when it comes to that, I do think that helps somewhat. You know, and then honestly, my own network is pretty female too. Like I've, you know, my, my closest friends are people who are in this industry. So, I mean, I've certainly, certainly reached out to them when we were recruiting as much as possible as well, especially in 2020. But um, I would just say, again, it's for us, it was, it was a lot of it was just about intention. And it was something we set out to do when we started to hire people at this company was to make sure diversity was on the top of the list. Mm -hmm. And we've done a great job there. You know, and there's always room to grow, right? Because one thing in our industry has been um, for us to get uh, both to get gender diversity, but increasingly, and and, and especially since the pandemic and um, and everything kind of everything thereafter, 2020 and beyond, cultural diversity writ large is important. And our industry, you know, you you talk about not being able to name like women that you'd want to work for. And not in a bad way, just simply that this, the circle of people are so small. Try replacing that title with like um, black person, right? A person yeah. of color. I, I've, I can, I can uh, unfortunately, like on my hands, name the number of companies I know that are founded or run by people of color, right? Non-Asian people of color, because actually our industry has a ton of Asians, but given the influence of the manufacturing sector of our industry. Um, but it's a... You know, this is a journey that we're on and the power sector in general, fossil fuels uh, in particular, but energy 1.0, um, this is the, like, this is the nature of the history of our industry. 
So I'm really proud to see companies like Primergy being able to have that, that flex, 45% female leadership, 41%, we'll call it gender diversity or gender equity, right? It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal progress in a company that is otherwise very driven by the marginal cost of, uh, of, of opportunity, right? The modern, the, 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 you have to be very intentional and very specific. I've talked about this with Emily Wangerman about how hard it is to hire developers that have the chops, like you're talking about Lisa, that actually have the chops to do it because it was for ages an industry where guys were groomed to do the job. Yeah. And there's still a lot. And I mean, Nico, I just like, there's still, there's still a lot of that, right? There's still a lot of, you know, there's still yep. times where I'm not at, there's still times that I'm just not at the table, you know, and it's a lot of it's, you know, social stuff. But. Emily, I want to meet, I want to meet the land developer females because we have a thing that our industry perpetuates called the land man. I hate it. I have so oh, yeah. many people be like, oh yeah, I'm a land man. And I'm like, you mean person? But it's because for like, for time in memoriam, like it was a guy's job. It was a man's job to go out and talk to the to the farm owners and develop those tracts of land and get all the rights of way and like bundle all these properties. You know, I had a really cool conversation last year, um, kind of before RE plus with, uh, with a developer down in San Diego. She had, she, you probably know her. She has a tremendous record, a track record of developing land. And, and she's like, yeah, you know, everybody calls us land men. And I just laugh because there's women doing this job. Anyway, if you're listening to this and you're in the, who are on the ground developing or, you know, land or assets or origination, I want to meet you. Reach out. I mean, Emily wants to meet you too, by the way. <laughs> so we're hiring. Reach out. <laughs> we're yeah, hiring. that's right. You've developed, I know from conversations with Adam and just knowing him as a person uh, as well, this passionate team. Talk to me a bit about the Primergy culture. Talk to that person that would want to come to Primergy. What, what, what distinguishes Primergy as a cultural uh, sort of icon in the industry? I think a lot of it goes, I mean, so first our CEO, Ty Dahl. Um, Ty's a gym. I would be it's remiss fair. if it's I did the talent you guys have. Oh my gosh. I know, I know. And, you know, I would be, <laughs> I would be remiss in not saying that he is like among, I mean, he's not only like so brilliant, but he's also just like such an incredibly kind person and he listens right? Which is not the case with every CEO and all leaders. And it's something I, you know, I, I'm working on it, like <laughs> something everyone has to work on. But Ty is, you know, having someone who's that empathetic and kind at the top is really helps set the stage for how the rest of the company behaves. And I think every that's, that's true of everywhere. Like it's so much of it comes from the CEO. Um, but I do, yeah. I will go back to the whole 2020, you know, getting launched in 2020 and hiring our team mostly through like late 2020 and through 21, it took a special kind of person, I think, to want to be making a leap at that time, right? And going to work somewhere where they potentially had never met anybody in person, nor were they going to for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And I think there was a little bit of self-selection that also came as a result of that. And it was a lot of people who came on board who were you know, they wanted to do the next, the next, the next right thing, right? The next best thing for their own career. And they were willing to take that leap. And I think as a result of that, you've got a lot of people on board who are, who are open-minded and they're strivers and trying to, trying to do as much as they can with their time as possible. So I think the culture here and Adam, you know, Adam again is uh, just among the 
kindest, most thoughtful, and among my favorite people I've ever worked with. So I think between all of those things, I think we do have a culture here that really does value. I mean, certainly we value diversity. We were very clear about that. You know, we value transparency and respectful project development, and we value balance between work life to the extent we can get it. Again, pandemic times, right? It was pretty darn hard, but I didn't usually come into a bunch of emails on Monday morning. So, I mean, those things are, are really important. We're doing a lot with not that many people. Um, we're trying to do how it smarter, better. We're 60 people total, thereabouts, wow. plus okay. or minus, yeah. That's a really efficient workforce for the level of work that you are accomplishing, candidly. Probably not nearly enough people if you're really get down to it, but we're trying to, you know, it's and always yet, about that And yet marginal, you aren't inundated right? yeah. on Mondays, yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah. You know, one of the things that I tell people to look for when they're doing the interview process is a leadership team who've worked together before. How important do you feel like that is? Because you and Ty worked together back in the Element Power days um, and went sort of went around and came back together. Um, what advice similar to that might you give to someone who's trying to figure out their place in renewables? Having a cut and paste leadership team from another company I don't know is always the right choice because it doesn't give you that diversity of perspectives and yeah. enable you to create something new or bigger, better necessarily. I mean, it can, but it's not a prescription for that. It also doesn't necessarily do a lot to bring in diversity to the leadership team when you're approaching things that way. And so I think it's really important to, there's a lot of, you know, articles and conversations about this, but getting out of your networks is actually really important to increasing diversity. But I think having a leadership, I mean, having a leadership team that gets along, I think is a huge part of it, right? Like, and I think, um, you know, I've worked with Ty before. I've worked with Tim before, Anthony Sibilia, who's our head of m and I've, you know, he and I have been across the table from each other several times, and now we're on the same side. Um, so I think having, we have experience with each other, but we're not just kind of doing the exact same thing we did last time, right? And everyone's kind of coming together to do something new or bigger, better than what they were doing before. How would you, how do I even t as a candidate trying to get a job at Primergy, how would I know if the leadership team gets along? That's a really good question. I think it's really important during the interview process to ask good questions about things like culture. And I know that I, when I'm interviewing candidates, I, I have, I ask questions for a little bit, you know, and have a discussion, but I generally try to leave. And I'm sure, you know, people who are listening to this podcast might've had interviews with me in the past. Like, you know, when people interview with me, I try to make sure there's a significant chunk of the conversation that is, there's space for them to ask good questions about the company. And if people ask me a question, like, how is the culture? How does the leadership team get along? What are the challenges at the leadership level? I am more than happy to answer those kinds of questions. And I think people mm. shouldn't feel afraid to ask that because it does dictate so much, especially with the smaller team like Primergy, how, how the culture is going to be driven. You and I talked about something briefly that I want to unpack a little bit. And I think that I wonder if you as a female in the industry consider that maybe there is more or less of this concept of imposter syndrome, especially given the number of, or the, the, the sort of velocity with which you achieved title and um, status in the corporate world. Uh, how do you think about or handle imposter syndrome? Surely by now, it's something that you've put to bed, Emily. Um, not for me, I haven't yet, but I'm hoping that you can help give me some tools <laughs> to manage it uh, as I move along in my career. 
you know, it's something that I think is, it's, I feel like it's something that so many of us deal with men and women. I mean, every, all types of people, right. It's not, it's not unique. I think about like, I sometimes think about like the like President Obama, for some reason, is my go-to for imposter syndrome. I was always like, what is he feeling? Like, he's like 42 years old or something in the White House, whatever he was. Um, like, do you feel like this is the, do you feel like this is where, where you thought you'd be? How do you feel about running the free world? How's that going? You know, I would love to say that literally I've been doing renewable development for, I mean, I, I started when I was like, you know, 19 years old or something like that. So it's been like 21 years. And over half my life that I should feel like I have like a level of expertise and authority and that people should, you know, that I should, that I should feel really confident in that. But like, even honestly, when you asked me to be on this podcast, I was like, Oh, really? Is anyone gonna, how is everyone going to feel about what I have to say here? Right. So I still, it happens to me still. And I think it's important to just acknowledge it because everybody's experiencing it. Everyone's you know, it's like a little bit of like the, Oh, wow, look at this. This is my life now. I mean, I honestly, I am, I, I step back sometimes, Nico, and I think about my career and like just all the stuff we talked about, like the little things along the way that kind of like helped me get here. I cannot believe how freaking lucky I am to be in this position at this company. Like I, I love what I do. I love this team, the leadership team. I'm doing something that I think is really important work, but sometimes I'm just like, really? Is this, is this like a, <laughs> who gave you that job? Right. So it happens sometimes still, even to me. Um, and it's something that I try to keep in check, but I think it's important also just to acknowledge it. Do you have any particular tactics, strategies that have helped you sort of become present when you do feel the sense of imposter syndrome? Because there are moments where you can't let it, you can't let it affect you. You know, I, I feel like I look around at a lot of my peers, like some of the women in particular who I kind of came up with, like I think about, you know, I think about someone like, like Ellen Balfrey at Apex, right? Like her and I were, were colleagues really early on. And I look at her and I'm like, God, she's so cool. Like, look at her. I want to hear everything she has to say. And I'm like, but we're, we came up together. We started this at the same time. So if I can look at Ellen and think about her as being this like expert in her field, then maybe people feel that same way about me, right? So I definitely, I look around at my peer group and I'm so proud and happy of everything they've all accomplished. And I... I try to make sure that I see myself as part of that group, right? That I'm not just sort of like an, an interloper in this whole affair. If I can share with you in that, I just had this experience. I talked to a lot of friends and they're like, oh, back when we were at First Solar. And I think of that as like, ooh, the OGs, right? Like these guys, First Solar, blah, blah, blah. But in 2011, which for many in the industry right now, that makes us OGs. Um, and I started in 2006, but in 2011, I was recruited to Trina by a guy named Mike Gruneau. Well, Mike has gone on to work at uh, a wind company and at a flow battery company and then to do development that was like one of the bigger development sort of storage development companies and then sold his business to Strata. A guy that we hired into to Trina now runs Seraphim North America, a friend of ours, Jim Wood, one of my best friends. Uh, another guy, Todd, was the top sales guy for years at Trina and uh, now runs a company called Megawatt Group, is the largest panel broker in the United States right now. And uh, the guy that got hired before me, the day before me, John Della Piazza, if you've ever interacted with Trina at all, you know pizza. Like John Della Piazza is the guy at Trina now. He runs Trina uh, Sales. And I look around and I'm like, I'm a total grifter compared to these guys. Like exactly. I'm the interloper 
right? I, and and my friends are like, what are you talking about? Like you've literally interviewed Jigger Shaw twice, Dan Sugar twice. Like you've had, you have Emily Cullen on your show now. Like I, I just, the whole idea of imposter syndrome is um, I wish that more people acknowledged it. And the fun, the fun part is that Oprah acknowledges imposter syndrome. You know, that. she that. said that sitting, sitting on stage, she'd be like, what the hell are all these people here for? Like, <laughs> they got to, oh, they're here for, they're here for Patrick Swayze or Tom Cruise, right? They're not here for me. Right. So uh, thank you for uh, being vulnerable and willing to uh, talk about that and admit it um, that, that you struggle with it. And I'm sure Ty, I'm sure Ty struggles with it. I'm sure uh, I'm certain that every leader struggles with it. But I think I'm going to answer. I think I'm going to include this in all of my interviews now. Like, tell me how you have overcome imposter syndrome. This is like a stable question now for Suncast. I'd love to know if you can recall any of the early advice that served as foundational insight for you um, that has given you momentum. Maybe it's something that you also now in turn share with the other leaders that you bring into the organization. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think uh, there's some real specific tactical advice I probably got early on that was helpful from some folks um, about education and the like. Yeah. I think um, being willing to listen to your team is a huge thing, right? And I think taking the time to listen to the folks that you've hired to help you form, you know, judgments and things like that is something that is it's so critical. And I think we all like, I think managers in general have this, you know, desire to be like the experts. Well, of course I know, I know how, you know, how the battery dispatch works at Gemini. I mean, actually, I can't tell you that, right? Like I would have to rely on somebody else on my team to fill in the detail on that. Right. And yeah. I think just like acknowledging what you don't know and acknowledging that as a manager, it's not your job to know every single thing that every single person is doing on your team. It's your job to make sure that everyone is kind of marching the same direction. And I was really fortunate to be, I mean, probably not for the people who were under, under me at the time, but I was fortunate to be a manager very early on in my career. Yeah. And um, I have a lot of, of land agents, as we call them. We'd never called them land men. Yeah. Um, Perfect. And just kind of like learning that it wasn't my, you know, my job to like, you know, know every single thing that they were doing all the time. It was my job to be a resource for them and to help clear things out of their way so they could get their job done. So I think just like, it's really hard as a manager to acknowledge that you're not going to know everything all the time. And it's a really yeah. important lesson to learn. The other thing I would say is for everybody in the industry, not just like the originators and the analysts, but developers and you know, procurement folks and legal teams, but to just make sure you're thinking about things with a commercial lens, right? Like we're actually, we're developing, we're selling a product here, right? What's the goal of it? What, what's the goal of that product? How are you going to make sure that product is most successful? To effectuate the energy transition, we need to make products that customers want to buy and our customers are the consumers of energy, right? And if you're just always thinking about everything through that lens, I think you're going to come up with developing better projects, and better, you know, better ways to deliver energy around the clock where people need it. We're not going to end up, you know, again, kindergartners playing soccer. Like there's some regions, just quite frankly, that we don't need more renewable energy in, right? And if you're thinking about big picture, what what the what the commercial reality is of the U.S. market right now, I think it'll drive us all to make much better project decisions. And I think in, on an individual basis, it's what takes you from being an associate to a manager, to a director, to a C-suite is thinking commercially about every decision you're making. Emily, as we wrap here, I always like to ask uh, a segment that I call Learning Leadership and Legacy. And I'm curious 
if you do, and not everyone does, um, if you do have a book uh, that you particularly like recommend a lot or gift or uh, or you would suggest has been really fundamental in the way you understand the world or, or your work, would you be willing to recommend that to our audience? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, a lot of books out there that I think are very influential, but I think one that is very applicable to our sector in renewable energy, but also thinking about how regions of the country make huge changes and become something entirely different would be Cadillac Desert, which I think is a, it's a long yeah. read. It's probably something some people read in college, but thinking about water the development of the hydroelectric system in the West and the irrigation systems that have driven a lot of the development in the Western U.S. There's so many great parallels to what we're trying to do with renewables, you know, from federal engagement to tribal issues. I mean, there's, there, the, the list goes on. And I think it's, it's a worthwhile read to think about how people were looking at this 150 years ago. Yeah. So it's a book by a guy named Mark Reisner. I'll link to it, of course, in the show notes. But for those who aren't show notes, readers, Cadillac Desert by Mark Reisner. Do you have a, a morning routine, evening routine, some sort of a ritual that helps ground you or uh, gives you uh, momentum? You know, I, I wish I did. I, I feel like for a long time, I felt like it was something that was like required to be in the C-suite, be to have that kind of routine. Mm. But I would say that, you know, one of the reasons I love project development work is that it's different every single day. And I would say that my life mm-hmm. is a little different every single day. If I can make it to the same yoga class two weeks in a row, that's like a miracle. I have two young kids. Oh, like it's, um, it's, it's a free for all. If I, you know what I love doing in the morning, Nico, is I love sleeping a little bit extra. <laughs> and sleep, I, think, I just told my wife the other day, sleep is my superpower. Totally. Like, I don't want to, if I can sleep until like the moment my actual kids wake up, I feel like that I am, I am ready for the day more than I would be waking up an hour earlier and meditating. That extra hour is everything. So yeah, doesn't make, doesn't make me less. Yeah. Doesn't make, doesn't make you lesser. Yeah. Along me so well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There was so, so many times where can be candidly just from as a type A person, I was negative on myself for not having a morning routine and negative on my wife for like sleeping until our kids woke up. And then I realized like, wait, I need to turn sleep into my superpower because I realized the more I sleep, the more quickly I actually am able to get things done. So I I hear you on that one. That was, that was an unexpected answer. Thank you. You've liberated me and others like me from the need to feel like I, I have to measure up to those folks that wake up at five in the morning. If folks are so inclined, and I'm certain they will be, how do you like to be found? How can folks best engage with you? And also while we're at it, how can they learn more about Primergy? Um, I think LinkedIn. I am, uh, that, is my, that is my one social media outlet. So I would encourage you to reach out and connect with me there. Um, Primergy, primergysolar.com. It's, we can, you know, there's great information about the company and job postings and some of the project work we're doing. And there's, you know, just a lot more to learn. So. So we'll link to the primergysolar.com and the job postings. Uh, well, let's end today with a bold prediction. And I'll let you take this in any direction that you want. Uh, in particular, I know that you uh, have a bone to pick with those uh, around transmission. What do you see as the critical path obstacle that we really do need to unlock to, you know, to tap into the vast potential for renewables in not just the U.S., but around the world to solve our energy crisis? I think I would say there's two things. First is given the timeline by which we have to make some of these moves, 
and do this deep decarbonization work, we need to work with technologies that are available now. Like there's obviously improvements that are going to be made, but we have a lot of these tools in front of us. We've got the 15 megawatt wind turbines. We've got, you know, we need to build, you know, obviously there's supply chain stuff we need to build out basically everywhere, but we can generate the energy, right? So I think it's about using a lot of the tools that are available today. And then I think the second thing is really unlocking markets. So transmission is really important but only if it comes along with rational market mechanisms for utilizing that transmission and bringing product to load. And it doesn't, one without the other is not going to get us where we need to go. We can't just build extension cores all over the U.S. We need to make a Western ISO. We need to make a Southeastern ISO. Otherwise, and I think this isn't a, this isn't a prediction. This is a fact in my mind. Like We will not get there without those two things happening. You need to provide avenues for customers to buy energy and you cannot. And there is a lot of lightly loaded transmission in this country. That was fantastic. You are the first to proclaim as a bold prediction that without a Western ISO and a Southeastern ISO, we can't get there. I love that. And uh, it's a great way to round out a fantastic, really phenomenal discussion uh, today. Emily Sanders-Cohen is the Chief Development Officer at Primergy Solar. And I'm grateful to you and our mutual friend, Adam Larner, for the pleasure and the privilege to get to host you here on Suncast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nico. This was a lot of fun. Hey, that is a wrap on these practical insights from a solar warrior whose journey I admire so deeply. I hope that the last 70 minutes of your journey have been inspired and informed by Emily's own journey. I certainly take away a lot from this episode, but I'd love to hear from you. What is it that you've been inspired by? You can email me, of course, nico at mysuncast.com. That's the easiest way to reach me. But if you would hop on over to LinkedIn, we've made a post about this episode. I know for sure it's posted on the Suncast Media page of LinkedIn, and I no doubt have shared something about it on my own profile on LinkedIn. You can find the links to that and all of the resources and book recommendations and more from this episode over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the show notes tab and uh, scroll down to this episode. Make it really easy. If you go to the very bottom of the homepage, you can actually just search Emily Cohen and it'll bring you right to it. I hope that we'll tune in again next Tuesday and Thursday as we continue to bring you stories from the front lines of women leaders in clean energy for this March lineup of Women's History Month and all women's lineup as we have done for the last four plus years. Oh, and one more thing, just a reminder that probably the single kindest thing you could do is to leave us a five-star rating and enthusiastic review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast as it really does help others filter through the noise and find valuable content in Suncast, just like you have. Thank you for that. You can do it easily at ratethispodcast.com forward slash Suncast. Takes about three minutes. And I am super grateful that you're considering helping us in that really easy and meaningful way. Ratethispodcast.com forward slash Suncast. Thanks again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you each and every week. You can learn more about them or how you could join them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. You can reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they do. Find out how at mysuncast.com. Remember, You are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.